Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of Jerusalem U's JU Israel the Teacher's Lounge. Uh, I am your host, Michael Unterberg, and this is the podcast where we try to keep you in touch with what's going on in Israel and give you insight and information beyond the headlines so that we can have a deeper understanding and feel connected to Israel. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? It's going good, Mike. <laughs> you saw me have to do it consciously. Because my last name is Unterberg, I always want to say Goldberg, even though I know his name is Goldman. So I, he, he, now he's aware of it. He notices that I have to very... I'm an idiot, basically. Um, and our third chair is filled with somebody who hasn't been here in a while. How's it going, Benji? Where are my Evites to the podcast? <laughs> Evites to the podcast. Dude, so- Evites? <laughs> So last year. So last year. WhatsApp, dude. So 2002. Yeah. 2002 called. They want your uh, thing back. No, we're there on Facebook. You can follow our group. And we have actually gotten some iTunes uh, stars and ratings. Thank you so much. Very appreciated. And not just uh, a few few people uh, put stars, but some people wrote. Really, really gratifying and nice things. So we're very, very thankful and appreciative of that. And for all the listeners, our numbers are continuing to grow. And so we're happy um, that more and more people are are joining our conversation, and we look forward to more and more people talking, like responding in the conversation and letting us know what they think and feel. So today, we just called an audible. We're doing a uh, conversation about a little bit different. We'll postpone our original topic, which was predictions for the coming year. But we're, we're switching to talk about... Last week's uh, episode, we demystified anti-Semitism, at least our theories of uh, why anti-Semitism is this strange racist phenomenon that exists across history and across borders. This week, we want to talk a little bit more about anti-Semitism reality as it is today. How is anti-Semitism, we're we're all talking about how it's growing in the 21st century. Uh, What are the different types that are around today? How are we uh, aware of them? How do we understand them? How do we um, respond to them? Is that basically the the framing? Sure, sounds good. Can I start with a personal story? Yes, you can. Because it's a it's a it's a, it's a life shaping story. I think you know in my in my life. So I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia. When I was living there, it was a very Jewish uh, area. So much so that, you know, you could tell the traffic was different on, on Jewish holidays and things like that. And when I was... I, what area is that? What area is it? Northeast Philadelphia? Northeast Philadelphia. Is it Yeah, yeah. Nord, well, it's Philadelphia and the Northeast. Well, it's called the Great Northeast, actually, in Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Oh, in New York, we had names for neighborhoods. Yeah. I'm sorry, you guys couldn't afford that. No, it's, it's Philadelphia. It's very provincial. Not very... People don't think so much. And is the playground where you spent most of your days? <laughs> Playground was West Philadelphia. <laughs> also in Northeast Philadelphia. No, uh, um, uh, he wasn't thanks, even. Thanks for getting it. I don't even think he was born yet. By the way. He came to Bel Air, which is my stomping ground. Oh, the circle is closed. Exactly. I'm saying he wasn't even born yet when I was uh, the, when this happened. So there, there were all there, we around the around the synagogue. At times, you, you would find like on cars would get like you know swastika or sometimes. Uh, Around Jewish holidays, we get their air tires um, punctured. That went on throughout the the years. But when I was very young, I don't know how old I was, um, probably around five or something. So we were walking home from the synagogue on Yom Kippur, 
we walked in a big group. There's a lot of us who who walked, and I mean, the streets were almost completely empty. Um, this is a Jewish neighborhood, so everybody was either home or in. Uh, and again, it's a Jewish neighborhood in America, not in Israel. So, um, and so a car drove by us with. I guess teenagers in it, and screamed epithets at us, which I don't know what they were, but I imagine they were. Uh, one can imagine what they were. And okay, not nice, but they moved on. Five minutes later, they came back, and we got egged. Um, and the image that sits with me is my father getting egged on Yom Kippur in his, you know, in his suit, and egg just running down his suit. And that is an image that just really sits with me. And I've often thought back at that. I'm sure that was a pivotal kind of moment in my life. Um, and that was got to be in the early 70s, I imagine, in the very early 70s, probably before the Yom Kippur War. That, kind of, that was, I think, a norm then. I mean, when I was a kid, I don't remember being egg, but I remember things like that happening. I definitely remember being shoved around, uh, once really beat up. Um, but I, I don't know that you have that anymore. I don't know that people younger than us, you know, we're 50-ish, I don't know that people young enough experienced physical assault. Sometimes a car would drive by and yell, I know, at some of my students in Cleveland, but nothing really, or, or pretty rare to have actual. Whereas in the 70s, I think it was much more normal. My day school took us to see a, some play uh, at USC. I grew up in L.A., and we wore, you know, Salma Schechters. There were these big kippas so they wouldn't fall off our heads, you know, because they were always running around. And so we had a bunch of these kids wearing big kippas and these think they were not jewish i don't know they said why are you wearing those you know big hats you have horns under them and i didn't understand the context then and you know, it was kind of explained to me and i'm sure one of the kids knew and told their friends that this would be funny were they older than you i don't probably but like you know mm-hmm. i was eight or ten i don't think right, like i don't i have a that's my memory if someone asked me to experience anti-semitism and it didn't actually impact me then and then i had to really think about it i was like oh i remember that um, but otherwise, you know, in a sheltered society around in a completely Jewish area, like in LA, you think people, it didn't impact you so much because you didn't understand it in real time. I definitely didn't understand it in real time. Uh, but also just my association with non-Jewish people was so limited. Um, and it was so, there was not enough real relationships because, in my neighborhood, you know, you went to see the doctor, they're Jewish, like the non-kosher yeah, restaurant still. You know, and Jewish people are going there. It's just, I was just always amongst, you know, a very diverse group of Jews, but always Jews. So it wasn't really until college where I had, you know, real, I would say, interactions uh, with non-Jews. But I still can't think of, uh, I didn't really experience it. I had no physical at all, no real insults. I mean, actually, I have one time where I was walking down the street uh, from tennis practice, and I was also around 10, 11 years old. And then this woman comes up to me, and she goes, you a Hebrew? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. She's like, you lucky, you chosen, you know. And it was just like well, that sounds philosemitic. That sounds like she was being that it was. Right. But it was. I mean, it's awkward. it's awkward. It's odd for like someone's come. Like it's funny because you have that. Net, I still right. It's it's that otherness. You're being recognized for your otherness, either in a good way or a bad way. But for the Jew, for I feel like for the Jewish experience in America. We've wanted to not be an other, whether it's good or bad. We want to blend into the American experience is, you know, to, well, I'm a white American and my religion is Judeo-Christian, you know. Well, I think, I think over the 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, I think the American assumption was that you would melting pot integrate 
and not become other. And in the second half of the 20th century, you sort of had the rise of, no, no, we're, it's not a melting pot, it's a mosaic. Like, we'll have our individual identity, but we'll all be Americans together, which has hit some bumps. And, and I do think there was a feeling, or, or maybe it was a, a weird assumption that we had, that we were on the course as, as Western culture. And I would like to hear from people who aren't American also, because I'm sure, you know, in every country it, it manifests differently. Your, Europeans definitely have a different experience. For sure. So I'd be very interested in hearing that. And it's hard to imagine that there are many Jews who live in the diaspora who haven't encountered anti-Semitism somewhere in their family. I think it's pretty. And yet I think we had a feeling in the West that we turned some corners, like like we were becoming a less racist, a less, um, you know, that sort of negativity was diminishing in society. The otherness is still, people are very aware of when someone is an other, and it could be turned into positive. So we just, uh, I mean, my wife just moved and found uh, her yearbook. And so she saw, like, we were looking at it, and someone wrote, you know, I'd love to marry you, but I'm not converting to your religion. <laughs> I just like, so my, she's from Canada. So it was, like, very funny, because, like, you know, they had a funny friendship, and this guy's like, yeah, we could get married, but I'm never converting to your religion. And it's just, like, this awareness, you know, she's, like, one of the only Jews in her school, and just kind of this around her, and they're that, okay, but other, right? Well, but I, again, I, but, in a, but in a pluralistic society, some of that other otherness, there's a cool, I was a expert uh, witness on Judge John Hodgman's uh, podcast on a debate between two sisters whose father is Jewish. And the debate was one of the sisters calls herself Jewish to people. And the other sister said, you're a poser. You're not really Jewish by Jew, you know, and, and by Jew standards and by your own standards. You're not really, you're just doing it to look cool. And I was amazed that there are people who in their social environment, right. like I, that, that, that assumption itself surprised well, me that, well. that it's, and I said it on the podcast. I'm like, I'm not from a place where that makes sense to me. Right, like, but a movie... Being cool, being yeah, you're saying Jew, Jew to get yourself some more coolness cachet. So it's, it's in, the, in the student population in Poland, it's like cool to be Jewish right. or of Jewish roots. Um, it's like a phenomenon that's uh, been going on for at least uh, maybe close to a decade. I always think about that, like when Cher dressed as an American, uh, a Native American, and like there was a time where like Native American commercials yeah, and things exactly. like that. Like, well, now that we've committed genocide, right? Yeah, the Indian with a tear in the in the littering commercial. Like now that we've committed genocide, so now you're like a cool image. Exactly. But it's a slippery slope because a movie can be really cool and then all of a sudden a new generation comes along and it's like, eh, that movie is not so great anymore. You know, I mean, it, it, when you're being recognized for the otherness and it's, now it can be really positive, but it, if it's always going to be in that, that, that sphere of otherness, then it could really dip down to not being a positive thing. And I think that's where you're seeing... Um, a lot of maybe even the rise of anti-Semitism in America today, especially on the right, where they're seeing all this kind of positivity around Jews in American society and be like, what the hell is going on here? Why is it changing? Why is there? I think that also can maybe be contributing to this, you know, this different type of anti-Semitism that's really not so different, but is really getting stronger. Well, I guess the feeling was, and again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm misspeaking, but I do think that most of us had this feeling that things are getting better, that the world is getting better at being tolerant and respectful and now in the 21st century we're like is it really getting better or was it or are things just in the shadows and in the closet and now now they're able to be a little bit more out well it was clearly socially not acceptable 
um, to, you know, be racist or anti-Semitic for at least, you know. Well, in, in a lot of European countries, it was illegal. Yeah. So, and that seems to have changed, gone back again. That in certain circles, it seems that being anti-Semitic and racist is acceptable. Do you think anti-Zionism is a part of that? Well, it's a part of it on the left, not on the right. I think on the right, there's not a real distinction. I mean, on the right, it's just pure anti-Semitism. Is in no matter what, being even a Jew, more bizarre, even more bizarre on the right because some on the right, we saw this uh, Richard Spencer, who right. like he says he's a who, white nationalist Zionist, yeah. right? Yeah, he says white. He's a white Zionist. He calls himself. He, he well, parallels his experience. Which what does that mean? Can you explain what he means? What he means is is be, white people in America uh, deserve their own country. More or less is what he said. So just like the Jews form Zionism to have self-rule, the whites in America have to have self-rule in their own country. Right. And kick out all the people in America and this and that. Well, no. I mean, I don't know that white nationalists – it's not a question of kicking out. In other words, let's give give Hispanic people – Georgia and and African Americans will give them Mrs. They they used to for sure, and so did Louis Farrakhan. By the way, on the uh, on the uh, Nation of Islam African American racist front, they said we, we I agree with the KKK that we are we are looking for a deintegrated America. We're looking for a separationist America, and we'll divide territory. So partition plan. Let's partition into multi-states. So Richard, this guy Richard Spencer, who apparently coined the term alt-right or what have you, um, uh, he went on Israeli, he was interviewed by Israeli TV, and he said this. Um, it's called, caused quite a stir um, because I, it's it's a and I think it's part of this uncomfortableness that we often talk about that people have with the word nationalism, because nationalism has often become um, associated with racist or um, exclusive tendencies. And that's certainly not the way that Zionism um, means nationalism, um, which is more Zionism means nationalism in a sense, I think, that it was meant in the 19th and 20th centuries, which is the rights of self-determination for particular peoples. What 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 defines that people as a people? Um, culture, land, language, really, um, is what. So it's not heritage. In other words, as long as you like that culture and move to that land and speak that language, it doesn't matter who your parents are. Is that what you're arguing? Uh, it can be both. What do you mean? It can be both. Let's say I'm from. Let's say I'm from France, yeah. and I really like Israel. So I learned to speak Hebrew, and I yeah, uh, convert to Judaism. Why do I have to convert to Judaism? Alan said that nationally, that the only thing that the Zionist endeavor argues is that as long as you like this land, language, and culture, and want to live in it, it's not part of. What makes you a part of it? Being born into it or converting through the religion. So then there is an ethno-national element to it. In other words, you do have to be from this. Uh, for sure. No, because you can convert into it, not from this. You can, you can adopt it. That's what we're saying. You can adopt it. Like yeah, you can become it, an American. Use a naturalization process. The naturalization process. You can naturalize. The, natural, the naturalization process into, into the Jewish people is 
today through through Jewish through different Jewish religious cycles, whether it's Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, what it is. Of course, as we know, that's complicated with current Israeli law and all that because we're still trying to work out this thing after coming home after two thousand years. But well, in antiquity, it was probably more permeous. But in, certainly, as the diaspora grew, they needed to develop some sort of ritual system, and that's still the ritual system. And how that works in today's political climate is a topic for another podcast. But it, but it's but you're saying it's naturalization. Yeah, it's a naturalization process. We become part of the people. So there's two um, w- ways of naturalization. Then you either can naturalize through the right of return. That's not naturalization. That's getting citizenship in the modern state. Right, naturalization. We're saying becoming part of the people. So you can. So, you're, so you're still part of people. So if you, you you can naturalize into the Jewish people and never live in Israel, never step foot in Israel. You can naturalize right. into the Jewish people and have rights. Then you have rights to immigrate. In other words, any Jew has the right to declare their citizenship, to take advantage of their citizenship in the Jewish state. Do you want to join the nation? So you naturalize to become. We have this complicated nature because we were out of out of here for 2,000 years, this complicated nature between our sense of who we are as a people, the Jewish people, and the modern state, which is our citizenship of Israel. So we still have, these things haven't been completely worked out yet. So if a non-Jewish person marries an Israeli and then goes through the naturalization process and through family unification gets permanent residency or potentially Israeli citizenship, have they joined the Jewish people then? No, no, so they that's naturalization not, no. to the state of the Jewish people, though. Right. So that's what I'm saying. There's two. There's kind of two tracks that still have not completely come together yet. That at times can be parallel, and times can be integrated. Those two tracks are the tracks of the Jewish people, and then and the tracks of being an Israeli, right? And that's why we have still we're we're working it out. Where those two they can be parallel at times, and sometimes they can come together. So, but there is an element of ethno nationalism in Zionism. The nationalism that people are finding, I think, more to the left are finding disquieting is the idea that uh, uh, our differences should matter. That we should we should think of ourselves as citizens of the world. That we should be part of one universal brotherhood of humanity, and not and have our own religion. That's well, everyone can have their own cultural. On the left, they'll say, "Oh, you, you can be a Jew in your religion, essentially your cultural identification." Yeah, because we're pluralistic and we respect yeah. all different expressions of culture and religion right. and identity and spirituality. That's and maybe, great. And maybe also we could be comfortable with having bagels as our ethno. Yeah, that's purely cultural, but. But no country should press advantage for itself over any other. No new country, I feel. I don't know. I think there. I think there were. Any question the legitimacy of the United Kingdom or you know France or Italy or Germany? I mean, these states haven't existed as long as the Jews have had. You know, were when they last had sovereignty and have returned to sovereignty. I mean, no one would question that Italy shouldn't be a country for Italians in the they, way that they question Israel should be a country for. Them. They question the legitimacy of any country that was a participant of colonialism in the 19th and 20th century. Of 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 they they question the legitimacy of their decisions and behavior. Towards any other nation, but not the legitimacy of their exist, their philosophical existence. I lost Correct. Us. You lost us. Yeah. When I, I think on the left, there's this, there's an idea today that the European world, the white European world, which was run by white European men, which colonialized the Ed third world. world, now the now has to uh, change 
everything they do totally to step back and allow the whole world to operate without their influence because all of their actions and influence are just a continuation of their evil colonialism. So we've beat them back. They're not explicitly colonial in, anymore, but they are still neo-colonial, and we have to roll back. Where? where? Europe, America. No, where, the, where is Europe and America colonial? Their policies in the Middle East, their policies in Africa. Are they willing to forgive loans to these countries? Are they willing to supply medicine? And you know, or are they thinking like capitalists and just if I can't make money, why aren't they? I mean, how the borders were created, the influence of colonialism a hundred years ago, and are we going to pay up for the mistakes that we committed? We they committed. So who's calling the question these things? The left, far left. Yeah. And Israel, Israel is one of those. Israel is one of those colonialist creations of the European white world, according to according, according to this worldview, and, and both, therefore it's both both because of you know the international intervention and the British mandate and etc. But also because they viewed Jews having come from the Western colonialist societies and were colonialists because we came from Europe and took you know a non white person's land for us white people. Herzl's plan was to work within the system of colonialism to reestablish the Jewish national normalcy of having self-rule. So the, so the Zionists did, you, did work with those governments. But that was the international system 120 years ago. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that no, in, this, in this... You can't apply your values of no, international norms today for how things went 120 years ago and then judge us... You know, as in the people that have followed for how the Zionist leaders acted. Um, plus um, I know I'm not really speaking to you, Mike. I'm speaking to the. No, but you're not speaking to my character, Mike. My character that I'm doing right now on the podcast is a left wing, not a radical, but a left wing thinker who says, I'm not, I'm not judging that Herzl did that. I understand that things like that happen, but I certainly shouldn't let that continue to go. I understand that Jefferson owned slaves. I understand that Africans were treated as three-fifths American. But I want... But I'm not going to let that continue. Not only that, I want equality for, for African-Americans. I want equality of pay and all that kind of stuff. So the same yeah. thing with Palestinians today. That's the stuff we have to fix. The, the work of the colonialists has to be undone. I'm not judging the people who did it. And maybe some of them were good people. Maybe some of them were bad people. And, and they got us on a road that we need to continue down. But I, I think a thoughtful person on the left, as opposed to a radical anti-Semite on the left, would argue uh, all of those things have to be fixed, and, and non-white people have to have their chance to develop their own culture. And I understand why people misunderstand Israel and see it as a result of colonialism and not as an indigenous people struggle for self-rule also. An indigenous people who escaped their own oppression from all over the world and have rebuilt their self-rule after 2,000 years. That's their misunderstanding in a nutshell. So, uh, okay. No, just I remember um, I saw this, but I saw a few photos of American Jews saying, standing next to a Palestinian, and the sign says, you know, I can go back to my homeland and question mark and get automatic citizenship. And then the sign says, I can't go back to my homeland, they won't welcome me. And it's the same place, right? It's just the idea, a lot of, I think, Jews, especially American Jews on the left, they laugh at this idea that we have a right of return to a homeland that they've never recognized or existed because... They don't recognize that ethnic part of their identity or that the heritage that they have, that we had, a, that they're indigenous to the land of Israel and that Zionism is, is legitimate, but rather that 
I'm, you know, I'm American or I'm Western or I'm white and people that are saying I belong to this group that took away that guy's land, I reject that wholeheartedly because I'm not a part of that story. That I think that's the essence of it. Well, they're saying the essence is I've assimilated into America enough that my... I don't even think the process of assimilated enough is, is I am white American. That, I mean, this is me. Right. And what Herzl said was, you're kidding yourself. Because as much as you think you are a white Frenchman and you're an officer in the French army, when push comes to shove, they will turn on you in a hot second. So your choice is either to assimilate to the level of utter obliteration of Jewish identity, no, which Herzl says no, it's not going to happen. Well, he he recommended it before he was a Zionist, and then he realized, well, then he realized that it wasn't real. He didn't get into the fencing club in university, and then he realized that he's a Jew. That's it. He was going to be defined as a Jew. It was what Benji was talking about before as being other, right? Even if you love us, you know, you're other. That that's already you know you're not part of us. Um, I actually wanted to go back to something else that you were talking about before, Mike, if it's okay. About so you talked about the the what you would call the um, reasonable left and the criticisms and how they see the criticisms of colonialism and how it played out and how we have to correct that. So how do you distinguish that from what would be the unreasonable left? Well, an unre- talking here talking about anti-Semitism, so right? Yeah, if you're an anti-Semite, in other words, if you hate Jews, I think if you don't allow uh, if if you're running a uh, a march for uh, LGBT. Uh, uh, I just messed it. LGBTQ. I forgot the Q. Uh, and you don't let a Jewish star be there because that looks like Israel and Israel, and you're making us feel threatened and uncomfortable. Now you've, you've crossed the line into irrationality that I can't understand. That I don't think is is morally defensible. I'm, you know, I, I don't think you're. In other words, I think that the rational leftist who says Israel shouldn't exist is wrong. But I understand his perspective. I think once you start saying, we don't want Jews at this march, you've entered into a level of identity politics, which is, it's this weird place of identity politics that exists. It's, it's, it's the left and the right are coming together around the world in this weird identity politics of your ethnic background defines what your opinion, your opinion's value. If you're a white person, I just heard a caller on a New York talk show. I listened to the to a, uh, uh, the Brian Lehrer show. And a caller called in and he said, when I was at Dartmouth and I wanted to join different, I'm a liberal, and when I wanted to join different uh, movement events, and I would start talking to people and say, but you're a white man, so you can't really express this. And he said, but I, I think it. And they're like, yeah, but you're a white man, so your opinion isn't helpful. And he said, I, so he stopped going to, he, he said, I haven't changed my political opinions, but I, I, I have such a disdain for these movements that rejected me because of my ethnicity. That's a weird thing going on now in the left. I think that's irrational. I think that's unhealthy. I think it's unproductive. I think that's what people... We hear about it more and more, and we hear about it a lot on college campuses. Oh, it's all over the place on college campuses. And it, it, you know, because you have privilege, you, can't, you have to check your privilege, and your opinion is not welcome here. Your voice is shut down. Well, you know, I, I don't... What did I do to, to deserve that? But you're of that ethnicity. Well, that's racism. And that's and, and then to a certain extent, when people in the middle and, and on the right get frustrated with PC out of control, you know, political correctness, if it's, can you not be offensive? Like, let's not have Disney movies with characters in blackface, 
singing about how great it is in Jim Crow South. You know, like there is there is a positive element to political correctness if it makes us more sensitive. But when it starts shutting down voices, which is something that we're seeing on the left, this concern of people on the left saying, we're not for freedom of speech if you disagree with me. Well, that's that's messed up. Like now you're no longer really a liberal. Any more than if you're a Nazi or a KKK, then you're not really a conservative. No, leftists and fascists. There's a weird coming together, and it's it's sort of. But but the leftists aren't liberal. That's the claim. I I don't. I don't think the Bolsheviks were liberal either. But but in the threat between between the Bolsheviks in Russia and the Nazis in Europe, this was not left or right. This was evil. So uh, exactly right. As you say, like you know, we are. In Elul, we just began Elul, which is the Hebrew month right before Rosh Hashanah. We're coming to Sukkot, where we sprinkle house. Nothing's new under the sun, right? I mean, we had this at the, between the communists and the fascists. There was no, it wasn't about liberalism, right? That's where you, you could say that's where America and England and the others came in, that they were bringing more liberal values, right, of the open society, democracy, which are really true liberal values. And that we're not distinguishing Republicans and Democrats, that they're all liberals. And uh, you know, they made the pact in World War II. They had to with the, with the communists, but that was only expedience, right? Um, so, well, Hitler said to defeat Hitler, I'd work with the devil himself because right. that's the that's the primary assault on right. civilization, right? So, um, and so we're seeing uh, not exactly the same thing now, but you, when you see when you say the left and the right come together, it's uh, a, a general trend of those who are trying to shut out other voices. Well, that, that's what's so fascinating about anti-Semitism is that it, it transcends in the right they hate us for being Semites and the left they say you're not Semites, you don't have the right to a land. Like it's just – it transcends everything and that's why I agree with Herzl that at the end of the day we don't assimilate and don't kid yourself. And we had that again. Remember the, the 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 Nazis hated us for being both communists and and uh, capitalists, right? Yeah. In the same breath, they would use the same words, right? And the communists hate us for hated us also for being capitalists, whatever. So, it's not it's not so new. It's not new at all. It's just in every generation, it takes a particular flavor. It adapt. It's like liquid anti-Semitism. It's a corrosive fluid that a, that that fits whatever vessel you put it into. It finds its way and it fills it properly. But also, but I think the context is different now, maybe than ever before. Which you have the strong Jewish nation state and you have most other Jews that aren't in Israel living in America and having to be quite powerful politically and socioeconomically as well. So it's what do we do that, you know, we're both kind of both most groups kind of laughing off anti-Semitism. This isn't really a threat because look how powerful we are. Um, So does that that sense of security and power you know, how should we perceive, you know, the, the videos of, of Charlottesville where they're saying Jews will not replace us and the screaming of, of blood and soil. I mean, it, we don't live there in America, so I mean, I can't feel how they're feeling there. Uh, but I can see, you know, you know, my Facebook feed of my friends. I can see what people are writing on blogs. And it doesn't seem that it really, it's not making such an impact. Well, there was, there was a, one of the most popular blogs this week on, uh, in Times of Israel. It wasn't mine. It was uh, this, this Jew from Barcelona who wrote, we're fine. Right. Yeah, he's like, we're not going anywhere. We're like, not going anywhere. We have a thriving community. Why would we talk? Don't talk to us about going to Israel. Uh, you know. The Jew, we feel very, I think most Jews feel very secure wherever we are. We have had a decent, um, nefesh benefesh, not me, but uh, Aliyah from France. 
Right. Um, less than expected. Less than projected. Maybe less right. projected, but a seriously. A lot less people came than I think that feeling of anti-Semitism. And a lot, um, based on what I've seen in the news, a lot have, have left because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the Euro is what, you know, is going to convince someone where to live. And if they can't transfer their businesses or convert their licenses to practice their professions, you know, they're going to stay where, where it's better for the parnasa of their family, for the well, livelihood of their family. Immigration is hard. I understand why most people don't immigrate. You've got to be a little bit crazy to go to someplace with, with less economic opportunity. But the perception is that, okay, I can still deal with being another and anti-Semitism because it's, I'm secure and I have power. It's also minimal. I mean, let's not over-exaggerate it. You know, seeing the scenes in Charlottesville, which was terrible. I, I, I mean, that's a college campus. Right. You're talking to a very you liberal know, college campus. Yeah. yeah. So it's crazy. And again, and, and the and the 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 anti-protests have been much bigger. Right. Um, so yeah, but turning on the evening news and seeing swastikas and hoods out in the open in the 21st century. Yeah. It's shocking. It, it is shocking. It is shocking, but it's not affecting people on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And that's the difference. Well, because it's also right. not institutionalized. There's no real institutional anti-Semitic stuff going on. Um, and it's also those these white nationalists, neo-Nazi, KKK types. They're not, you know, in Teaneck, New Jersey, or in Northeast Philadelphia, or in Peter sure Robertson. Not happy. Sure they are. Right. Well, we don't see it. You know? The biggest KKK... Uh, um, chapter used to be in, in like Danford, Connecticut. Right. People are starting to be more open about it now. Where, where did all these people at Charlottesville suddenly show up from? Right. They've they, been they've been communicating together on the internet. The internet is where they came from. Yeah, right. and now they're saying created them. And if, if you watch that, no, but if you watch the Vice News thing, they said the point of this was to show that we can not only organize and assemble on the internet, we can do it in real life, and we're going to continue to grow this movement. Now, maybe they will, maybe they won't. With their guns. I think what makes us uncomfortable, even taking all this in, again, obviously shocking. Obviously, I really do believe the effect is minimal. It's not day-to-day. People's, it's not day, people's day-to-day worry. I think what is scary is that we all know that Hitler started as a completely you know, out of the norm um, in, a, in a group that was disaffected and not mainstream whatsoever. Oh, those radical weirdos. They'll never really have any power because everybody knows they're ridiculous. Ah, did you see that Charlie Chaplin movie where he made fun of him? What an idiot that Hitler is. He's a cartoon character. And in the country that first emancipated the Jews. Uh, so, not France. France, it was yeah. yeah, but but yeah, but within Europe. So and that's you know, uh, and, and so we have to be vigilant. I think we have to be vigilant. We can never really um, have like you're saying. We do have power. We have all these things, but but be too secure because because we know that radical movements, given the right circumstances and the right context, can quickly change from from radical to mainstream. What, what year did Hitler take power in Germany? 1933. 1933. 1933 when democratically. Yeah. Democratically, with what's, what percentage of the population? Minority. 29%. 29%. Yeah. So small fringe movements can sometimes really cause, in the long run, you know, you have a Reichstag fire and suddenly you're suspending, you know, uh, you democratic freedoms for emergencies and suddenly that fringe group has enormous impact. Yeah. It's especially a, when people feel threatened. 
when people feel threatened. You have economic disaster. You have a, you know, you have all kinds of different things. Fear and uncertainty are powerful emotions, and they allow you to, they cause you to suspend judgment. So, uh, you know, you have to be very wary and very vigilant of these sort of voices, whether on the far left or the far right, that can be really dangerous. And by the way, one of the things that is often was claimed, certainly in Nazi Germany, and but not only is the, you know the power that the Jews have. You're talking about Jewish power. That Jewish Jewish power is you know obvious. You know, quote unquote. It was obvious in the Soviet Union also, where it's suppressed, and and here this thing based on equality and liberal values and, and everyone's sharing turned into a crushing, you know, more decades of of destruction of Jews and Jewish life. Under the Soviets. So this type of totalitarian, this type of anti-human freedom, this, this, this denial of the liberty and rights of every individual are very scary. It can come from multiple directions. And, the, and the, sometimes I feel like the, the weather vane is how they're talking about Jews. And I, think, I think we can't have too much sense of security that democracy is indefeatable. Because that's what really what we're talking about, right? Uh, it, it's pretty clear that Jews have thrived under open democratic societies um, because of the nature of them. But we're, t- we're making an assumption that that's going to be the way it is in another that's 50 years. Last. Right, that's going to last. And there's no guarantee that that kind of society, that structure of society is going to last. That's the Gettysburg Address. President Lincoln said, we're, we're, this is an experiment that our forefathers started, and we're seeing if we can keep this experiment going. They don't all keep going. Rome's democracy lasted, the longest lasting democracy in the world is about 300 years. America's about 240. It's going to take a lot of work and vigilance to protect it. That's true in Europe where there's economic instability and your rise of fascists. You have what, what's the golden sun in Greece. You have the, the rise, in Poland, you have the rise of these. Uh, also nationalists. Nationalists stripping away demo- democratic rights, freedom of the press. Right. So, so when we use the word nationalism, we've got to be cl- clear because we, we kind of use that word when we talk about Zionism, right? Uh, well, so. but I think Zionism uses it in the sense of this, these are, this is my family. In other words, if my mother and another person are hanging and a stranger are hanging off a cliff and I rescue the stranger and somebody says to me, why do you do that? And I say, because I don't see differences. I see all humanity is equal. You would say I'm a pretty messed up bad person. We would look down. At me, we would accuse me of being a bad person for letting my mother fall. So, so nationalism should be based on the idea that, of course, we have, of course, we are different, and we'll group together and we'll function in a healthy way, and interact in a healthy way when we work. Each unit will work together in the world to make the world better. Denying that isn't going to be the the, the the communist attempt to deny differences. Didn't work. Right. We're going to make everyone equally Soviet. I it led to disaster. Yeah. I mean, I think that traditionally the Jews used the word nationalist in the sense of peoplehood. Um, we were always called Am Israel, the people of Israel. It's a peoplehood. It's coming together. Whereas nationalist is a, is a modern term, really. Nation is from, comes from the modern. Uh, okay, but I'm yeah, perfectly Hebrew. No, I mean Hebrew is Lum, right? Is Lum your nation, what you belong to? Also, so, Hebrew uses Goy. Right. A goy kadosh, you will be a holy nation. So there's all these different, whatever the English translation is, there are units in, in international society. We're not all one equally the same right. homogeneous species. International. International. Internationally, we, we, we subdivide into different Nation. lands, languages, and cultures that we call nations. And we, we want our seat at that table. And we've got it because we demanded it. And that's a good thing. And we want that to continue and thrive. Just as much as we want the rise of democracy and human rights and freedom around the world. 
And that, and uh, and unfortunately today, this idea of nationhood or nationality is often associated with the right to take away those freedoms, um, and that's a bit of a, that's a, that's unfortunate, I think. It is unfortunate. I think it's unhealthy. But uh, take a step back, not a step back necessarily. This conversation started no, but this conversation started because we're really talking about anti-Semitism in democratic societies, yeah. right? And. The question is, like, this is kind of a first, right? Where you're seeing a rise in anti-Semitism in, you know, democratic society. Because in the 21st century, but right. you've seen it in other democratic societies. Germany was a democratic society. Weimar. In America had significant anti-Semitism in the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, the whole eugenics and uh, uh, what have you comes from America. America had slavery. Right. Well, that's – sorry. But what we talk a lot about is when you see an increase in anti-Semitism – does that then usually lead to a decrease in democratic norms in those societies? Um, and is that, do we have something, like, is there a, some sort of insight here that there's an increase in anti-Semitism in America? Does that lend to the American experiment being much more of an experiment than actually going to last? I mean, Well, democracy is defined by the people have the power, the people rule. The government serves the people. The government's for the people. So if the people have power and citizens, then, then the government can't harm its citizens. As soon as, it, as soon as it starts harming its citizens, it's not really a democracy anymore. It's lost its right to that claim. But most of the conversation about anti-Semitism, it's not about the bureaucracies or the institutions or the states really implementing some sort of anti-Semitic policy. It's much more the fringes of society and that are you know, thriving with these feelings and now feeling confident. Yeah, now feeling confident enough. So the question is, right, right, right. But I mean, the rise of anti-Semitism in Western Europe and in, in the United States, you know, what are the states going to do uh, to, to prevent this increase? Um, and you're, you know, you're, you're seeing, I think you've seen it in France and the United States, that sometimes they do stuff and sometimes they don't. I, I th- no, but I think you get at the core of the uh, core of the issue exactly what you said that there, today in America there's no institutional anti-Semitism, right? In the in the middle of 20th century, you still had quotas in colleges on right, what Jews are going, right? Exactly. So right, and that was even earlier, but even in, still in the middle, I mean, and that's pretty much gone. Yeah, and that's pretty much gone. It's pretty much gone now, right? I mean, there's no institutional anti-Semitism. I don't think it really, I don't think it really exists anywhere. You could say it in, in America. We're talking about, um, and so that that would be a very market change we would see in America. And I think that that's the that's the the Nazi Germany uh, analogy where you see it was a fringe group, and then that fringe group takes over and becomes mainstream, and then changes the whole forces, the institutions. Right, and that's one of the ways you see that Jews, for instance, once the Nazis take over, can no longer be doctors or professionals, lawyers, and things like that. Um, and that—that's when you really see a change, as opposed to. But that—that's the way they stay vigilant. So to me, that's how you know how that sounds to my crazy Zionist ears, because I'm a crazy Zionist. Yeah. Well, you live under a volcano. Do you move away when you hear the first rumble? Do you move away when the smoke starts to come out? You Do you move away when the lava starts to come out? Everybody, everybody will answer that question differently. Well, that, I mean, that's why it's so hard. That's why it's so hard. But, but look, for instance, uh, the uh, German Jews, 50% of German Jews ran away from Germany between 1933 and 38 when the Nazis came to power. I mean, most people think, ask, well, why did they run? They did run. They half, 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 half ran. They, 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 I mean, that's 
250,000 people. Where could they go? They didn't really have anywhere to go. Many went to other European countries where they were caught later anyway. They don't have anywhere to go. And maybe more would have left, but it was a very aging community also. People were very old. Mm-hmm. So when you leave and when you're not is a lot of different variables, I suppose. But um, I think most people, that's what you're sort of talking about the French, most people will move, will, will, will move when they feel under direct threat. From the institution, not from their neighbors. Because people, I think, in France, I don't know if you lived in certain places in America, you might actually feel direct threat, especially when people walk around with guns and saying Jews will not replace us. That can be quite threatening, but still on a grander scale, unless it's actually institutionalized and and formalized, I think people still feel a great sense of security that they don't really need to change their lives. Well, thank God for the state of Israel, and thank God for all the work of our forefathers who— uh, more than four score in, in seven years ago today, uh, founded uh, a movement that led to a nation where the Jews have self-rule and freedom and don't have to... We have all kinds of problems, but uh, nobody's separating us as Jews and rounding us up or, or treating us differently because we're Jews. It's a good thing, thank God. Yeah, very much so. So, I, I oh. Okay. So, <laughs> no, I had another thought. It was something else Benji said, but I can't remember what it was. Uh, all right. We'll post it later. Um, so that was uh, a little bit uh, nerve-rattling and a little bit, I would say, unnerving, but important as, uh, unfortunately, we live in an age where we can't, you know, uh, we can't assume that civilization's growth and progress is linear and always gets better and better. It's very often... Uh, two steps forward but then one step back and we have to be able to reckon with it. I think what's fascinating about this conversation, this was mostly an observation, uh, our observation of something that we're not actually a part of. As in the, the feelings, the experience of it, I mean, we don't live it, right? I mean, we live in Israel, anti-Semitism, you know, not really dealing with it in the, in the same way. Um, and most of the times these teachers lounge conversations were trying to expose issues in Israel that we're living and trying to teach about it, et cetera, to people that can only hear about it in, in certain mediums that they're not actually personally connecting to. Um, so it's, I'm curious, okay, well, these three guys that live here in, in Israel, you're talking about a problem that's not really personally connected to you besides the fact that, you know, we, we came from there. Um, that gets me to a question of... Was this worthwhile endeavor for us to even be be having this discussion? I think so because first of all, the world is a much smaller place, and our awareness, and especially as immigrants, we have we do have sensitivity and awareness. Right. So, but also sometimes that's exactly what you want. You want the insight from people who are looking right. from another place. But that being said, I would love for people to right. let us know what they think, their right. personal experience with anti-Semitism, their thoughts about what it's like in their country, uh, their thoughts about. You know, if every Jew has to keep their passport active, which I think they should, when 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 do you when do you go, and how do you fight these things? I'll, I'll, and I'll add on just we do teach students mostly from North America, they're coming sure. to Israel, and they're coming from this context um, from the summer. Uh, so I think for us, it's important for us to be aware about it and. And this is the place where we get to talk things out of our right. mind to be articulate and see what we're thinking about it and see what others are thinking about it. So I think that's why it's helpful. No, and it's I also, but when I, especially when you get new students, yeah. you know, you you learn a lot. Like that, it's I always get like that insight that I didn't like. I never thought about that, you know. And I feel like kind of having this conversation. And if we had it in 
three weeks time after meeting new students to be like, I would have said something differently or thought something differently because you're getting that perspective of the person that's actually living it. Uh, and so I, you know, kind of feel that if we had that, that someone that just came to Israel from the States, it could really, it could have added to this conversation. So I feel like I'm looking forward to kind of insight of people thought of what we had to say. So you know, I can learn more. Well, hopefully all of our topics are that kind of thing, that the more you, that they're, that they're food for more and more thought um, as we go forward. And also I would say it's important to have these conversations as teachers in a context that doesn't take any side in any politics, whether in Israel or Europe or America, because it's not about a particular, our students are coming from different political camps and we should be able to have these conversations intelligently, no matter where you sit and, you know, where you vote. Um, so thank you very much, guys. Thanks, Benji. My pleasure. Thanks, Alan. As always. <laughs> um, and keep your, we've, we've started, we, we've, again, we've noticed more downloads, but we're looking forward to more and more feedback. Thanks so Share much, everybody. Friends. Share it with your friends. We're always happy when people recommend us. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teachers Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ju Israel Gap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys. <laughs>